Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event. Are you ready? Let's get ready to ramp up your sales. And now the man you've been waiting for. He is the real thriller in Manila. The undisputed, undefeated, reigning, defending, pound for pound, heavyweight, John, the sales machine, Rankin! Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is a highly regarded B2B growth expert and founder of Voris. With over $100 million in generated sales, and $280 million in capital raised for himself and his clients. His focus is on data-driven strategies. Is what puts him in the top 1% of sales influencers. He is the author of Cold to Committed, the sales development framework, and 16 Steps to Repeatable Sales, which are essential resources for enhancing sales performance. Having worked hands-on with over 70-plus B2B SaaS and service companies, he specializes in helping B2B SaaS and service companies improve sales results and build repeatable processes. He has trained over a 1,000 sales reps, equipping them with skills to succeed in today's competitive environment. Please welcome Kyle Van Voris. Happy to be here. Well, that's a lot, man. You've been busy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just doing the Lord's work, as they say. Doing the Lord's work, you know, and 280 million times, apparently. <laughs> yeah, more than once, that's for sure. First of all, let's talk about the 100 million in sales that you generated. And whenever people get on this podcast, I'm always about being real, relevant, and give them, them strategies that work right now. So what was the first thing you ever sold, Kyle? Yeah, personally, um, gosh, if I were to go, you know, the very first thing I'd have to like dig into my childhood. But um, the first time that I sold anything, I when I was going to college, I worked at a um, uh, an office depot. It's like an office supply store. And I was in the tech department and our objective was to sell or upsell like a computer setup whenever you sold a laptop. So that was the first thing that I sold that I got paid a commission on. Right on, right on Office Depot. Don't they have the easy button or is that? That's Staples. Yeah, that's Staples. Yeah, they made our lunch with that. When did you get into B2B sales and, and really the SaaS environment? Because it's one thing to work in a store. It's a, it's a whole different ball game when you start representing a SaaS company. Yeah, totally different. So I got my first SaaS sales job a couple of years after that. And I was an SDR, so responsible for doing cold calls, cold emails. Uh, but back then we didn't email very much. Um, I was actually on the testing team for cold email, which happened like halfway through my time as an SDR and into it. Uh, so I started as an SDR, primarily cold calling, and we were selling uh, marketing automation software to salons and spas. And that was the department I was in. And we had a whole bunch of them. We sold to all small businesses. Um, so that was a, my first like real experience in SaaS. And from there, I moved into a direct sales position where I was no longer just cold calling. I was also closing my own deals. And uh, that, that was kind of the start of my um, actual like B2B SaaS uh, sales career. Where did you go from there after working with Intuit? 
I went to a, a cloud call center software company called TalkDesk. Uh, they're pretty well known. And I saw that's, I started selling more mid market. So if you look at kind of the, traditional spread of software deals. You have your SMB or small to medium sized businesses. Uh, those are typically more transactional sales, as you know, like, you know, within third, you know, within 30 days. Um, and for those of you who are less familiar, who might be listening, there's then mid market. And those are like larger companies in the small business. And typically they have um, longer sales cycles and they also have um, larger deal sizes. And then you go into enterprise. So I started moving towards, um, uh, mid market in that in that sale. After that, I went and wrote my first book. Then I started running SDR teams. That was at an SMB SaaS company based out of San Francisco. It was an early stage startup. We were just you know we just raised a bunch of money when they hired me. Uh, we ended up raising a bit more. And then I went and uh, ran an inside sales team at an enterprise software company. And that's where I got my enterprise experience. I love that. And, you know, even, even me, I've had to learn, you know, from going door to door to actually being in stores, selling FMCG and then selling, you know, getting kicked out. The sign said no soliciting. I always said I, I didn't hear it. It wasn't loud enough. You know, just wanted some water. I went from that, right? Water. Why are you here? What the fuck do you want? Just, just needed some water. It's hot out there. And, and, um, I went from that to actually selling in stores, right? My people, I have direct sales even now with skincare. We own a brand called Aquaplus. I went through the transition of selling door to door, store to store, then into selling, you know, one on one as far as credit cards and doing advertising or signing up cell phone contracts, training my people to do a lot of different sales, even uh, selling from the boardroom, selling from the stage. From loyalty app software, we have a software called Fun Crowds, and then we have a software called the Sales Machine, and that's obviously B two B. It's a sales performance system, right? So the same psychology and methodology that's needed to drive performance is built into technology, and it's been my experience. And I want you to talk about yours, Kyle, because there is a transition. And there is an evolution of going from FMCG to low ticket to mid-market to high ticket. You hear about a lot of high ticket closers out there selling coaching 5,000, maybe 10,000 or 25,000. But in the B2B space, and it's been my experience, our solution right off the bat is 100 bucks a seat, right? So when you're talking about 500 people, that's enterprise sales. So that's not high ticket. But I want to talk about how you evolved and adjusted and what was the changes you had to go through because you go from selling something low ticket to mid-market to high ticket. It's a very different psychology you have to have, a different methodology where listening is the greatest superpower versus impulsing. You know, it's not FMCG. Can you talk about that and, and your evolution? Yeah, it's funny you bring this up because I see a lot of like uh, sales influencers on Instagram who talk about like, this is how you close. And these are the, the words you need to say in order to close a deal. Or if they give you this objection, here's how you overcome it. And for the vast majority of them, I can tell that 
their primary experience is selling um, very transactional products direct to consumer. And that might be a high ticket of five, 10 grand, maybe 30K for some coaching program. Um, but it's very different when you go to B2B and you start moving up market and you have more complex sales cycles. So like, here's a classic example, a really well-known sales trainer. Um, someone on their team called me while I was running the sales development team at a uh, kind of an early stage financial tech company. I had 14 reps and they had reached out to my boss. And since I ran the SCR team, he wanted me to talk to the people first to uh, see if it was even worth us investing into some training for the SDRs. I did all the training myself and uh, it honestly would have been nice to have, you know, I was running, I was managing 14 people. It's a lot. So it would have been nice to have some, um, some sales training support. So I hopped on the call with the person and the guy in the very beginning goes, so at the end of this call, I'm going to go for the close. I was like, all right. <laughs> and he's like, is everyone who needs to be involved in the decision here? I'm like, well, no, you just have me. My boss told me to look at this. And if I like it, I'll facilitate a meeting with you. And the guy didn't want to, to talk to me about the their program at all. And he's like, well, I think we need to reschedule this for your boss to be there. I'm like, well, he's not going to be there. You reached out to him. He set it up with me. This is what you got. So <laughs> take it or leave it. And the guy ended the call to his credit. I mean, he stood by what he, uh, I guess what he believed. We totally would have been a buyer. Like 100% would have been a buyer. This was the, is your wife here? It was the equivalent of that. So it was just a total mismatch. And that's what I often tell people um, when someone's not super familiar with selling to other businesses or even, you know, SaaS sales in general. Um, those little gimmicks of like, you know, whatever, uh, the, the kind of, uh, overcome the objective with objection with this special phrase. And this is a closing language you should use. It's way less effective. The more complex the sale becomes and the sale B2B typically is more complex than an individual sale. I to totally agree. So Kyle, would it be okay that no matter what, when we end this call, you're going to make a decision, right? Whether it's a no or a yes, but would it be fair to say that, you know, we go through this. I understand your problems. We give you a solution to them and you'll be able to give me a decision today. <laughs> That's the entire script, right? In, in like 30 seconds or less. And it's, it's really boiler room sales. It's the old model. They really aren't fucking hearing you. They've got no interest. They're just following a script. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's totally right. Yeah. And so, you know, one of my favorite movies is Jerry Maguire. Have you seen Jerry Maguire? Yeah, yeah. I actually have met Lay Steinberg. Beautiful movie. And, you know, I, I rewrote the script. So great, great on him. Right. But, but the, I rewrite the script when I train salespeople. And the first thing I say is if it doesn't go well, whenever we're working together, right. And because we role play, there's no better way to, to practice except for role playing, right? That's where you sharpen your sword. You don't want to role play on a customer. You want right. to, you <laughs> yeah. want to go in prepared, right? So a lot of the times I'll, I'll say to my salespeople, you lost me a hello. Right. Because there's a, and then I'll, I'll play that scene, right? It's all lovey dovey. And uh, he comes in, you know, I just wanted to experience this with you. Uh, I love, and, and she's in a, a, a man hater club, right? She had all those people there, right? The, the, the women bashing how men suck. When he comes in, he's telling, he's pouring his heart out and she goes, shut up, shut up. You had me at hello. Right. And I'm like, 
guess what? You lost me at hello. One of the greatest ever sales trainers, Jack Daly says, you know, a lot of people just show up and throw up. Yeah. I don't know who said it first because there's a lot of first, right? Otherwise you show up with commission breath, right? And it just stinks, right? And intuitively people can fucking sense something's wrong with this dude. He, he hasn't asked me nothing about me. Yeah. That's a development stage that has to happen. So I get it. This guy went to work with you B2B. And not only is there a lot of decision makers sometimes in the process because a lot of people are put in charge and it's their heads that are going to get whacked. If they, if they sign up for a solution, it doesn't make a difference. Then it's, they're going to get fired, right? That's why the challenge is them understanding how your solution is really going to make a difference, long-term, sustainable, scalable. So you went from this Intuit or QuickBooks. What was the price point on that? And then what was your evolution of price points? Because it's important for business owners to also understand it's going to take evolution and sales training to evolve your people. Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. So the first product that I sold um, was $3,200 a year, about 300 bucks a month. And there are different plans, but the average was around 3,200 a year. The next uh, place um, was 30 to 60K a year. And then uh, when I, I never sold this product, but I ran the inside sales team and we were selling multi-million dollar annual contracts. Let's talk about, you talked about earlier that you needed help, right? In sales and cause you had 14 people and you were handling 14 SDRs. Was it outbound sales, outbound cold All calling? All outbound cold calling. All out, so real world hunters. Warriors. Yeah, big time. Yeah, we were making 300,000 uh, cold calls a month. Yeah, and that's what it takes, right? Especially if you've got high ticket. And that's what I call high ticket. Uh, not yet enterprise, 30 to 60,000, 30 to 50. Yeah, well, that, that product was actually a little bit different. Um, how they monetized. So I actually skipped that one. How they monetized was actually a percentage of the assets under management. It was a financial uh, technology product. So we didn't have as good of like as clear of a of an average deal size um, because it was a percentage-based fee based on how large uh, the firm was. So that one was a little bit different, but I would say the sale was probably closer to like a lower mid-market to like a higher SMB sale. So generally you're dealing with two two, three decision makers versus a mid-market sale. Generally, you're at like the three to five range. Ultimately, the price point was anywhere between 30 and 50,000. Is that accurate? It's, it's tough to say. Um, I'd have to do the math to figure out what it actually was. The 30 to 60,000 was, uh, was uh, call center software, but probably around that amount. I'd have to do the math though. Right. And I'm in the world of, because uh, my headquarters... One of my headquarters, especially my team, is in the Philippines, right? Obviously, the sales machine is a U.S. base, but uh, we have call centers, BPOs that service the world. Everybody's got a, a VA Filipino. Do you have one? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Everyone on this, everyone on the sales machine has a couple VAs from the Philippines. So I get it, right? And it's a way to automate. 
And when you were managing, you had those 14 warriors and you said you needed help, right? So I get it because at one point I was managing over 3,000 people and I was dropping the ball, like seriously. You had nobody in between you and the 3,000? Oh, I did. But ultimately, like I would, I had 200 offices and I would check their P&Ls, their stock sheets, make sure that they had a, a enough projected amount of product for the next six weeks. And then on top of that, I would check their production chart, their entire teams. Of course, I promoted a vice president and I promoted divisional managers to handle different regions because it's a lot. But ultimately, the nucleus of the organization, we provided the rewards, recognition, competition, compensation, the quarterly leaders meetings, the, the ultimate leadership challenge for these people, the, the annual dinner, and always looking for another opportunity or product or service that we could sell to grow the organization. So obviously I'm doing this with Excel, checking these 200 reports every week. It was just insane. I had no time for myself. On the weekends, I would travel to another city and do a leaders meeting and then another one on Sunday, one city on Saturday, one city on. So anyway, I just couldn't keep up anymore. I was drowning. Yeah. Full disclosure, I couldn't keep up, you know? That's why I created the sales machine. I wanted to automate the entire system because, you know, I felt like I was failing my people. I've failed before and made mistakes. And, you know, failure to me is is something that's it, breakfast of champions as long as you learn, right? But when I was failing others, it was an entirely different uh, scenario. And I'm like, I, this, this is not acceptable as a man in my life, right? What do you think is a, specifically a good amount of people for a sales manager to manage? Because ultimately without technology, like when I was doing it with Excel, yeah, right? What should business owners understand? How many SDRs should one sales manager? And by the way, my sales managers, ultimately it was 20. Yeah, it's a lot. I helped at the highest level, trickling down the entire system for them to use. But for you, what was the sweet spot of the amount of SDRs a sales manager should be managing? Yeah, for and this applies to SDRs and AEs. Um, I tell folks that their manager should have no more than nine direct reports as a mid-level manager. Once you start getting into double digits is when you should start considering hire, hiring another manager. And if you time things, if you're like trying to figure out the right timing, you would ideally you do the split at 12, um, depending on budget and stuff. You There are nine direct reports. You should start thinking about the next manager. If you have the budget, start to bring them on. Uh, but if, you, if you know, you're trying to do a smoother transition, once that person gets to 12, you can split them into two pods of six. That's generally what I shoot for. And I like those numbers. You know, you go from six, but you stack somebody's deck, like whether, so we have a level called team leader, right? So when you have five, you get promoted to team leader with yourself at six. And then from there, you branch off with yours and the sales manager still looks after you, but then you evolve and you guys both evolve for your teams and we just compensate the manager from there. So you went from there to actually writing a book about how to develop SDRs, right? And how to scale and, and automate the sales process. Tell us about the book. What was the aha moment for you when you like, wait a minute, there's just got to be a better way. And, and I can put it down, I can put it in print. 
Yeah, well, I'll say the first book I wrote because I didn't have like an SDR manual when I first started. So the first thing I did when I got hired as an SDR is I looked up books on how to like be an SDR. And I couldn't find any ones that were just specific on the role. There were definitely sales books. Some of them covered cold calling. Some of them didn't. But I didn't have a great like resource to uh, go to. So that's why I wrote the first one. The second one was similar. Uh, being a mid-level manager is incredibly challenging. Um, so that's why I wrote the second book was just to share some of the things that I've learned that I learned uh, being in that type of management role. And then the third one, the big, this was like the big aha one is what's the simplest way for somebody who has a brand new product or service, what's the simplest way for them to actually operationalize their sales process? So then that way they can uh, build a foundation, they can actually scale. And that was a real question. That's the 16 steps to repeatable sales is I believe that the founder needs to get to that repeatability so that that way they can actually scale up their team. And this is a kind of a step-by-step -step guide on how to do that. And that's a great, analogy right if there's no repeatability there's no scalability like it's fucking chaos it is total chaos and you've got to have that structure you got to have a system regardless of your strategy if you want to have scalability so even i've experienced that running my own business you know some, sometimes we all need a checkup from the neck up well, definitely. And, and being data-driven is probably the thing I harp on the most because with a sales team, first of all, sales should be the most or one of the most data-driven parts of the organization. You can track every activity, the outcomes of all these activities, the drop-off between different deal stages in your sales pipeline, and you can get a good visual of what your entire sales process looks like from an effectiveness perspective. And then you can say, hey, our cold call conversion is terrible. Let's focus on that because if we increase that by a couple percentage points, then it's going to lead to hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue annually, sometimes millions, depending on the size of the company. But if we're not looking at the data, then we can't make those decisions on where we need to focus. And then we end up just shooting blind darts and hoping that we hit what actually moves the needle. And this is one of my challenges with sales trainers is if we don't know what they actually need to be trained on, we end up training on everything. And we leave it in the reps' hands to have the self-awareness to know where they're, they're struggling, where they're not, and they can apply what's most appropriate. The vast majority of them don't have that understanding. So what I find more effective is to let the data tell me where we need to focus and let's do targeted training in those areas. So I take a very data-driven approach because I think it unlocks a lot of the direction that uh, we don't have otherwise. You know, for me, it I even take it a step further because... There's links in the chain and obviously where's the breakage, right? Because once you find out where it's going wrong, if you check out all of the activity, like you said, it could be they don't convert the demo as an example, or they don't, an SDR doesn't convert the next call to a demo, right? So where is that break? And is it everyone or is it just someone or some people bringing down the numbers? So I like to manage track and measure everyone individually and collectively, right? And that's what we do with the sales machine because if you're really giving the same training to the top 20% who don't have a challenge, right? With closing the sale or don't have the same challenge as the 80%, then you're gonna lose them at hello because as soon as you start doing the training, they're like, fuck man, I don't need, I'm, 
This is not even an issue for me. An issue would be for potentially for them, not closing the deal, but upselling, right? Doubling the deal, tripling the deal. That could be there. And, and, and I find a lot of organizations are too general to scale the organization because they're not looking at people independently or individually. They're, they're looking at them collectively. I like to do both. So we raise the waterline of everyone. All the ships raise. Yeah, exactly the right. waterline raises. The standard raises, right? And it helps you identify those things too. So what ends up happening is you have a rep who outperform, outperforms at a specific metric and you can figure out what they are doing that's making them so much better at that metric than anybody else. And then you can start to systematize that so it becomes the standard. And that's exactly what you're, you just said. That helps raise the tides for everybody. And if you can repeat that cycle, uh, then what you find is you get real repeatability, but then your efforts start to compound over time and you get better and better. We talked a lot about sales trainers. So I'm, I'm also releasing the book, The Sales Machine, how to recruit, train, and retain a sales force, a multi-million dollar sales force. That's what it is. Everybody's teaching how to sell. Okay, well, you know, and I've had some people on the podcast, they're like, I'm like, okay, so have you ever built a sales force, like, and scaled a sales force. And a lot of the feedback I get is, no, I don't do that. I don't want to do that. I had, I had a guy who's got 400,000 followers on LinkedIn, badass, Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoho. He's trained them all. And I'm like, so tell me, what is your approach to building and scaling sales teams? And he goes, I don't do that. I won't do it. I did it before. And man, I, I don't tolerate it. I build them into stars and then they leave and then they go somewhere else. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people out there teaching sales. There's not a lot of people out there teaching how to build and scale a multi-million dollar sales force. Like I, and I, for me, if, if you want your success to be automatic, you got to be scientific with this, your approach, my approach, right? So you, you put pen to paper, you're like, look, we're going to find out where's the breakage. Yeah, you have to have that kind of analysis, in my opinion. Um, it's the only way that you can actually refine your sales process. Otherwise, you're just relying on hiring the right people. And anybody who's hired at scale knows that without a foundation, you're basically flipping a coin. I've seen somebody who's in, who was not performing well get fired, go to the next company, and become a top performer. I've also seen a situation where you fire a sales rep, hire somebody on, and they end up doing way better than the original rep. If you don't have that foundation where you can say, okay, the average sales rep can perform at this level here, what ends up happening is you churn through people hoping that you get the right person. I call it hire and hope. You hire, cross your fingers, and you hope. And that's not a strategy. That'll get you to a certain point. But um, I, in my opinion, it's better to invest more time into building that foundation because then you're going to have a higher hit rate every single time you hire a new person, which is the number one cost is, you know, typically headcount. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for me, I, I watch a lot of football and I'm a big fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's right. And, and yeah, we didn't do good. I, I say we, that's how invested I am into this team. But I love, absolutely love Mike Tomlin. And he always says the standard is the standard. 
and who sets the standard. I just had a sales meeting yesterday and I, and I let them know, you know, a lot of them listening to their salespeople and these are sales managers, right? And then they tell me what those people are saying. And I'm like, who sets the fucking standard? I'm not dropping my standards to go down and work with you. You have to raise your standards to work with me. And, and if you're asking me to lower the standards, there's no fucking way. If anything, we're going to raise them. Of course, we have rewards, recognition, competition, and compensation, but I'm not going down uh-huh. to work with you. You've got to raise your standards up to work with me. And right now, you're listening to your guys tell you what's possible. So who's setting the standard? Not you. You're, you're too busy listening to them tell you what's possible. Go back out in the field. You go out and do the sales again. And then let me know how it goes because we, we, we doubled our sales before we were doing more sales, uh, last year than we are now, same amount of guys. And they're just looking for handouts. I don't do handouts. I do hand up. Right. And we have a system. So go out there and raise your standards and show these people how to set the pace. And guess what? Then they will. But if you don't do it, no one will. And it's been my experience. And I want to hear from you, Kyle. Yeah. It's a cardinal sin. A lot of pe- people or companies are one salesperson away from tanking. Because if that salesperson becomes unhappy, that number one guy, or someone headhunts him, then the organization knows what they're really made of. Because the standard isn't the standard. There's that one guy that's doing or the top 20% is doing 80% of the sales and it doesn't have to be that way. That's just a bunch of bullshit. Yes, the Pareto principle is out there, but the truth is you can raise the standards. So have you ever seen that happen? And what have you done to eliminate that from happening? For me, I never hire one salesperson. Yeah, yeah. that's Minimum two at a time, two at a time. Yeah. I mean, look, one of the biggest risks is having one top performer and no one else who can hit a number. That's one of the biggest risks to an organization, especially at the early stage. And how do you combat that is you reverse engineer what they're doing that works and are relentless about repeating it with another rep. Because once you can repeat something with another rep, you know you can get other reps there. And of course, what you're saying, 100%, hire two salespeople at a time. Some folks can't. They genuinely can only hire one rep at a time. And you have to operate in the kind of the budget and the restraints that you have. But I tell people, um, if you can, always hire two reps at a time. And once you have a rep where what they're doing is working, you have to be relentless about systematizing that as a process and then giving that to the next rep to repeat. And as you have repeatability, then you can actually scale something. Otherwise, to your point earlier, you have no standards. You're not able to repeat anything because there's no standard for anyone to operate off of. So it's incredibly important that we leverage top performers to systematize what our sales process is. Great advice. Great advice, you know, especially for building and scaling a sales team. And not many people are talking about that. I mean, there's a lot of sales trainers out there and, and they're amazing. But what, they're amazing. They're doing great. Right. And it's very valuable and needed in, in actuality. And yes, I'm being a bit facetious and sarcastic because that's what I was really good at in school when I was a little boy. So I just fucking roll with it. But the bottom line is all of these different frameworks 
are necessary. And, but the biggest thing is build a connection with people. Number one, and, uh, and shut up and listen, right? Like what is their greatest problem? And their favorite subject is themselves and what's in it for them. So when you listen, you have the ability to actually help people. And that's what people want. They just want help, right? So having, I mean, throughout your career, you obviously saw yourself as someone that could create a bigger difference. Would, would that be accurate? Because you kept evol evolving. And then now you've evolved yeah, totally. into helping SaaS companies actually raise money and scale. How did that come about? And then once we know how that came about, I want to talk about, you know, what, is, what do you think the biggest challenges are for, for SaaS companies starting up? Yeah, well, there's a couple. Um, you know, I would say the primary, the primary thing we help with is we help organizations that are typically at the earlier stage, maybe one, one to 10 million in annual reoccurring revenue. We help them actually systematize their sales process and get to repeatability. And what I found is a lot of companies in that window, they generally run to try to hire a VP of sales to help them build and then scale out their sales company. They look at, um, or sorry, their sales organization. They look at it as, all right, time to scale. And that translates to bring someone in to build out their actual process and then scale it. And what I've found is it just doesn't work. The vast majority of VPs of sales at early stage startup companies as a first VP hire don't last 12 months. And the average tenure for a VP of sales across any stage of company is 19. So they don't last very long in the role. And it's my opinion that that's because the expectations are out of control. I mean, you're asking this person to come into your company where you haven't figured out really how to sell your product or service. You want them to figure out how to sell your product or service, figure out the right verticals to be targeting, who the buyers are, how to connect with those buyers, what messaging is going to resonate with those buyers. Then you want them to evaluate sales talent, hire top performers, train, coach top performers, manage them day to day. <clears throat> Do coaching calls with them. You want them to be able to fire them when they don't perform well. You want them to be able to scale up the sales team once they have the foundation built. That person starts their own company. They're incredibly rare. Alternatively, and this is my core argument here, alternatively, build something that works. It's not going to be perfect, but build an initial foundation where you have something that somewhat works. I know I can have a sales rep doing these activities and generating this result, then bring in that VP to scale something that's already working. It's a better use of your capital because VPs of sales are expensive. You're also de-risking the hire quite a bit and you're not making it a make or break. Too many companies, and I've seen it time and time again, I've been in the boardroom when things are going well, I've been in the boardroom when things aren't going well. Too many founders put so much on that VP hire that if they don't work out, the company is in such a bad place that the only, there's only two ways to get out of it. One, by taking over all the responsibilities yourself and actually doing it right. Or two, raising more monies and money and repeating the cycle. And that's what a lot of them do or they have done historically. And they're all getting caught with their pants down right now because funding's drying up a little bit. Kyle, have you been talking to my team? <laughs> I'm talking to somebody. Well, guess what? I fucked that up. 
I bet. The sales machine is unlike any other CRM because CRMs are a race to the fucking bottom. At best, CRMs, I don't care what anybody says, they're a fucking digital address book. That's all they are. They don't drive performance. Look at a CRM. Does that inspire and motivate anybody? Does it have rewards, recognition, competition, compensation? Does it have a mission control system with levels of development and learning? So people know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it? Well, guess what? The sales machine has it. Because people don't act if, because they're in fear of making a mistake or they're confused, right? So I'm like, well, let's eliminate all that. And I listened to Dan Martell. I'm like, man, Kyle, are you and Dan just pointing out everything I did wrong? Yeah, look, these are these are classic mistakes, and you learn from them, and, and you can learn the hard way, or you can try to um, surround yourself by people who have been on that road before. But I can tell you, the story you just told is super common, uh, super super common. I've heard it countless times. So you're not alone there. And look, it's difficult. It's not easy to sell an early stage product. There's a lot that goes into it, and um, you know, messaging is super important. Who the right buyer is is super important. So it takes a really special type of rep to be able to figure that out. Sounds like you found one of them, which is awesome. Um, but anyway, yeah, this is a very common story. I'm doing the sales as well now myself. Well, that helps. Because one, I love it. Two, I fucking created the product. It's my IP. We patent. We have patent pinning, a smart framework. So seriously, there's five modules in that smart framework. Sales, marketing, accountability through achievement, retention, and training. So it's like having Zendesk, Teachable, MailChimp, Salesforce, and a performance management brain all in one system. That's awesome. All drives and triggers human behavior, rewards, recognition, competition, compensation, levels of development so people know what to do, when to do it, how to do it. It automates your growth, sustainable, scalable. And now the methodology, and I'd love your advice on this, Kyle. I'm, I'm, I'm working with Dan Martell, full disclosure, right? And Dan, if you hear this, right on. Thank you. So I'm, I'm using the value-added reseller and or software integrators to scale, and I'll just go have a conversation with, my, with them myself as well as building my own sales team. Any other advice of how you would scale out without, you know, spending a million dollars on Google ads? which is a race to the bottom. Yeah, I think you're probably doing the right approach. Um, you know, CRM products are notoriously challenging to go to market with without huge marketing budgets. Um, and generally what they, like newer CRM products generally go to the real small SMB and they're completely product led. And then as they start getting traction, they're able to afford a direct sales force. Um, I still go outbound generally for all products is um, I recommend going outbound, doing cold calls. It tells you so much about the market where if it's really not right because everyone you're calling already has a CRM and they're not going to rip out HubSpot or whatever. Um, if that's the case, then you're like, okay, well, now it's not the right time. It's not that it doesn't work. It's just now it's not the right time for our product maturity and our, our kind of our brand recognition or even just the the positioning of our of our product more than it is like brand recognition. So I would try outbound, but I think you have the right approach. I think the integrators make a lot of sense. Um, I think marketing makes a lot of sense too, but you need a pretty big budget in the CRM space from what I understand. Yeah. And I'm eliminating, I don't want to be even in that realm of CRM. Do we have a CRM in the sales module? 
Yeah, so what? Doesn't matter. Yeah, you can manage, track, and measure your sales pipeline and contacts and leads. But for me, it's sales. It's a sales performance system. Yeah. Well, those you just go outbound with, you know, I, I know several uh, folks who have companies where they do some kind of sales performance tool or, um, yeah, I mean, any, any kind of software product that directly impacts sales performance, you can show ROI really well um, with sales teams, right? So I've always seen success going direct with those kind of products and just cold calling folks, getting them on the phone and learning about their challenges with their sales team and then offering, you know, a solution that actually solves that challenge. I'm not a fool. Tools, tools are cool, right? And so for me, a CRM is a tool. Yeah, a yeah. CRM with marketing is like a power tool. But if you want a machine, you need the sales machine, right? That's why we patent pending on the smart framework. And it's got to play on the smart, right? So a lot of companies say, well, we already have a system. And I always say, well, great. Is it smart? Oh, cool. <laughs> like our sidebars say smart, right? Sales, marketing. And they're like, what do you mean? Is it smart? Yeah, seriously. Does, is it a, is it a machine or is it just a tool? What would you rather have to grow your business? A machine or a tool? A machine. Well, me too. That's why we built it. Right? So. Now, what do you think is the biggest challenge for companies as far as raising money? Do you have a formula? Because it's all over the place, whether, and we're talking a seed round or even preparing for a series A or B, what would be the greatest advice you could give to founders who find themselves in a place they want to scale? Because I bootstrap my gig. Yeah. Right. But to scale, I'm not going to start throwing money at Google in the CRM space. That's a complete, utter fucking waste of time. And marketers yeah. will tell you to do this if you got to spend more money because HubSpot and Salesforce and Zoho are spending that money. And they're complete idiots. Yeah, totally. There's no way that I have the resources to compete against those budgets. So it's just money in the wind. So what would, what would be your advice? <clears throat> so I don't do any like, practical boots on the ground fundraising. We've had probably 50% of our clients are venture backed and a big part of raising capital is your traction. But at the stage you're talking about, we're saying pre-seed, even seed investment, less so about traction. It's more about team and vision, um, but it depends on the firm that you're reaching out to. That being said, I've had several clients that fundraise and the two things that I see, one is kind of the classic, try to meet with as many investors as possible. Um, it's helpful to be where the investors are. So a lot of folks will come to like the San Francisco Bay area where I'm at and kind of network with as many investors as possible. That's helpful. Um, and then the second thing, this is more of a creative idea, uh, but there's other people who know a lot more about fundraising than I do that you should talk to. But um, one of the creative things that I've seen one of our clients do that was really, um, really interesting was he started a newsletter and he you know, met a VC, he added them to the newsletter and every month would share their progress and their progress, you know, they'd be doing better and better and better and better. And they'd share the progress every single month. And the newsletter started to grow just from organic word of mouth as investors showed it to other people and they kept getting added to the list, et cetera. Um, so anyway, that worked really well for him. And he told everyone, I'm not ready to raise yet. 
And then when he was sent an email to that whole list who were just watching his traction saying, Hey, I'm looking to raise. He closed around in 20 days. So maybe give that a shot. Wow. That's priceless, dude. That's definitely wasn't on my list and I love it. And I love doing work like this and, and getting, you know, the opportunity to learn from people like you, Kyle, and also to share it with, with my network of people who run real businesses, great, relevant advice and things that people can implement right now, especially with uh, systemizing their sales teams and utilizing your frameworks to scale. Been priceless, priceless. So what's next for you? What's your next goal? So, I mean, Vorce, I started Vorce three and a half years ago. We're going strong. Uh, I intend to keep working with B2B software and service founders and helping them build very resilient sales team. We don't take a lot of clients. We're very um, integrated. Like we have a team of five people. We deeply integrate ourselves with our clients. So we don't take very many. And that's the type of work that I enjoy doing. So that's what I plan to continue. Awesome. And where can people contact you to work with you and utilize your frameworks? Yeah. So they can follow me on LinkedIn, Kyle Van Voris. My website's voris.com. That's V-O-U-R-I-S.com. There's a lot of free resources there. We do a weekly live class where I teach totally framework driven. Here's some actionable stuff you can do uh, every single week. Sometimes it's on how to write a good cold call script. Other times it's on how to evaluate sales talent. Uh, every week we do a different topic. So that's another resource for people. Awesome. Well, you've been absolutely awesome, Kyle. I really appreciate your time. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks for joining me today. And if you got value from this episode, do me a favor, like, subscribe, and refer a friend. And if you want even more value, go to thesalesmachine.com, click on resources, and there's tons of resources there to increase profits and drive performance in your business. Right on, right on, come on.